unstoppable kick-ass confidence. Are you ready? Welcome to the Raw and Unscripted Show with Christopher Roush, where we help you overcome your self-created crap without the self-help fluffy bullshit. Now please welcome our host, Christopher Roush. Hey guys, it's Raw and Unscripted with yours truly, Christopher Roush, your host, and you're at your place where I help you overcome your self-created crap without the self-help fluffy bullshit. Welcome to episode number three. Just got done recording episode number two, and I'm hot, and I'm feeling good. So here on this particular episode, the point of this is to really just share with you more about me. There's some of you out there who may know my story and may have checked me out or been a longtime listener, a longtime friend of my previous uh, live radio show that I did called the Kick-Ass Radio Show. You can see the little thingy right here. As far as my story, that's what I really want to do. I want to uh, connect with you guys today. I want to let you know, give you a, a look behind the door, if you will, on my life. Not only just my original upbringing, which some of you may already know about, but just I want to talk about the last four or five years of my life because, quite honestly, people know me as the quote-unquote master motivator. People know me as Mr. Kickass. They know me as the guy with always a lot of energy, always positive, always upbeat, all this other stuff. And quite honestly, that is true, but there's also uh, a dark side to me. There's actually a negative side, a very um, uh, depressed side. I've been diagnosed with depression a few times in my life. One time I was actually diagnosed as bipolar, but I laughed at the guy and then I started making funny noises and different uh, voices and he actually agreed with me, which was funny because I was just messing with him anyway. Fucking doctors. Uh, here, let me give you a label. So anyways, no, it's I'm special. I'm different, just like you guys are. So anyways, I just want to share this particular story with you, my hero's journey, if you will, so that you understand a little bit more of who I am and what I'm about, especially the last couple of years. I think you'll really um, be intrigued and you'll also understand better why I'm doing Raw and Unscripted with Christopher Roush now at my life, because I have a lot to say and a lot to, to share. And I think we need more vulnerability. We need more openness in this world. We need uh, not to see people as how great they are or how perfect their life is. I know a lot of people look on social media and think that they have to keep up with the Joneses per se. And we're looking at how many likes and shares our posts are getting and all this other shit. We're looking for this validation in our life. When actuality, the validation and, and, the, and the confidence comes from in here. It comes from your heart and your head. And it comes from the belief and the tenacity that you demonstrate every single day going after your goals and your dreams without fail, no matter who in the fuck in your life is telling you that you can't do it or why you can't do it, especially yourself. Now, here's, here it is. So uh, I was born in uh, Los Angeles, California, in the inner city. Some guys of you have heard about South Central LA. I'm not sure exactly if Inglewood is considered South Central LA, but Inglewood is not a nice place to be, especially if you're a, a young white kid in a predominantly black neighborhood. Now, when my mom moved in there, it was predominantly white, but apparently um, over the course of a few years, it, it changed pretty drastically and it got pretty um, nasty. It got pretty dangerous. And my mom, you know, obviously was on welfare. Well, not obviously, but she was on welfare and uh, food stamps and did all that stuff. So growing up in Inglewood was a definitely a tough situation for me. And we lived there for the first about five years of my life. And during that time, um, of course, I can't remember my first couple of years of my life, but I do know that I never had a dad. My father was actually married at the time when he was fooling around with my mom. And according to my mom, his wife was pregnant at the same time that my mom was pregnant. And so allegedly somewhere out there, I have a brother or sister, but uh, quite honestly, I don't want to mess up their life. I've never reached out to my dad. I've actually found out that he passed away at the age of 57 uh, from cancer. 
I, I started, I looked him up uh, later in life and just kind of found out because I was curious about my medical past. As you get older, you kind of get curious about those things. So no father figure really in my life for those first couple of years. But what was in my life was my sister. And uh, unfortunately, I no longer talk to her. But I have a sister that's about seven years older than me, a different dad. And so growing up in Inglewood, I just remember cockroaches, cats, and music. <laughs> cockroaches, cats, and music. My mom had a ton of cats. Uh, we had a bunch of cockroaches as much as she tried to get rid of them. But music was like really the center part of my life. The phonograph needle, I consider myself vaccinated by the phonograph needle. So I'm thankful so much for music because that was one thing my mom instilled in me from an early age was just getting lost in music. And so I have her to thank for that. But those first couple of years were pretty trying. I mean, I had to grow up pretty quick. Suddenly started learning about racism actually on the reverse end. So I was white getting picked on by black kids because I was different. And I never really understood that because one of my best friends was a kid named Tyrone who was black. Unfortunately, that was the situation. So we had to exit out of Inglewood pretty drastically when I was about five years old. And fortunately, my mom had met a guy and uh, it was looking like at this point in my life, I was gonna have a family. She met this guy, so I was looking forward to having possibly a dad. Um, my sister was moving with us, so we moved out to Anaheim, California, which is here and still in Southern California. Middle-class neighborhood, started going to elementary school. Everything seemed like it was gonna be cool. Uh, unfortunately, that's when the abuse really started, the physical and the mental abuse, because my mom suffered from various psychological disorders and she had addiction issues throughout her life with alcohol and pills pre predominantly. But she was also her own worst enemy in the fact that she studied psychiatric disorders. And I think that through that process, she kind of self-diagnosed her into various uh, disorders, multiple personality disorder. If you know, if you're familiar with Sybil, uh, my mom changed her name like 28 times to kind of fit whatever role she thought she was supposed to be in. So it was very confusing for me. But when we got to Ferndale, that's when the physical abuse started as a result of me not taking care of her cats. Um, you're going to hear me talk about cats a little bit here in the first part of it. My mom had about 30 cats, four dogs in our house. And my responsibility at a very early age, probably about five, six, seven, eight, so on, was to come home from school. I was actually a latchkey kid. And if you guys know what that means is that your parents aren't home and I had a key uh, to get in the house and I had to be by myself in the house. But that wasn't actually the case for the, about the first year or two. I actually had to come home and sit on the porch and wait for my mom to come home. And I couldn't really go play with my other kids because they, she didn't want the authorities knowing I was home by myself. So I had to go sit on the porch by myself and wait for her to get home. And then when she got home, my responsibilities were to feed the cats, give them water and clean out their litter boxes. And if I didn't do that, um, I got my ass kicked. So the cats were a number one priority and that was very difficult for me to deal with once I started really realizing that they were number one and I was number 12 uh, down the list. And again, I really don't want to share this as a poor me story. So please understand that everything I tell you about happened for me and not to me. And that's a, that's a really clear distinction I want you to make in your own personal journey is thinking about the things that happen in your life. They didn't happen to you. They happened for you. And it's up to us to decide what it is that we're going to do with that and find strength out of that or find weakness out of that and become a victim or a victor. So I just want to continue on here. So at that time living at Ferndale, like I said, uh, her boyfriend moved in and unfortunately that relationship also became abusive physically and um, verbally. My sister decided she had had enough of that. She had had enough of my mom. She'd had enough of taking care of me and decided to go live with her father who had um, more money and more stability, which, you know, now that I look back at it, I can't necessarily blame her. But honestly, at the time I felt like I was deserted. 
So um, that physical abuse and that mental abuse continued with her husband at the time. And uh, God's honest truth, there was one time where he came home and I was sitting in his recliner chair watching cartoons. And the rule was when he got home, I had to make sure I was out of his chair and not watching television because he wanted to sit down and watch the nightly news. Well, in this particular situation, I really didn't think it was a big deal. I was turning the TV off and he was a little upset and actually threw a screwdriver at my head and narrowly missed me by probably about that much. I, I, I heard it go past my head and it stuck into the wall. So fortunately enough, he was a bad aim. Otherwise, I might have a screwdriver stuck through my brain. I might not even be here right now. Um, and I really didn't know what to make of that because I never did anything to him to hurt him. And all I wanted to do was for him to be my dad. There was a case in point when I got to be older, all my friends had dads and they were into sports and they were getting all sorts of, uh, you know, hanging out with their pops and whatnot. And I remember I came home one day and I asked, his name was Jim. And I asked him, I said, hey, can we go throw the football? And he said, oh man, my shoulder hurts, you know, blah, 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 all this bullshit. Uh, interestingly enough, his biological son came to live with us a short time later. And guess who became super dad? He did. And uh, so I had to watch from my bedroom window and watch those two like be thick as thieves and, and be cool. Uh, while at the same time I was alone and uh, dealing with my mom's psychotic issues at the same time. Not to mention the fact that going to school, I was awkward. I was uh, bullied. Uh, I was beat up. I was ridiculed. I didn't fit in. It was very challenging for me in those early days. All I wanted to do was fit in. All I wanted to do was have a family. All I wanted to do was be loved and be a kid. I mean, who doesn't want that? But the physical violence really started getting to me. And like I said before, thank God for music because I would go into my bedroom and I would put on ACDC records and Kiss records on this phonograph. And uh, if you guys are young and you don't know what a phonograph is, Google it. It's really a really cool thing. They're actually coming back. Um, so I put the music on and I would put my, my ear up to the speaker and just really just drown out them arguing and fighting and the glasses breaking and everything. And I would just get lost in the music. So I tell people often that the music saved my life. It's why I've got uh, a music uh, microphone there. I mean, I've got tattoos of music. It's not a big deal to show you. Um, at any rate, things really got seriously bad when my mom's favorite cat got sick and she wound up spending all of the rent money trying to save him. So as a result, her husband left, my sister left. So it was just me and my mom. And I was probably about 10 or 11 years old at the time, maybe 12. And, uh, suddenly found myself on the weekends, uh, digging through trash cans for cans and newspapers so that we could try to make up the money for the rent that she had spent on her dying cat. Yeah. So here I am out digging in dumpsters and everything, trying to do this. And unfortunately it didn't work and we wound up losing the house. So on May 10th, 1982 at the ripe old age, I think about 13, 12 or 13, I became homeless. Um, my grandfather had offered to buy us a house or get us a house or get us an apartment, but my mom would not give up those cats. She would not give up the dogs. She felt that she owed it to them to take care of them and everything. She made a, a commitment to it. So we ultimately wound up putting most of our stuff in storage and the rest of the stuff that we needed to live on, we packed in our 1969 country squire station wagon, which if you guys know, that's the ones with the wood paneling and everything along with. 18 cats and four dogs. Yeah, let me repeat that. So I moved into our family station wagon with 18 cats and four dogs, and I had to drop out of the seventh grade of uh, Brookhurst Junior High, uh, which was probably a good thing because at that point, due to everything that was going on, uh, Jim's son had introduced me to drugs, so I started smoking pot, smoking uh, cigarettes, and a little bit of drinking. I was only 13, um, but he introduced me to that, and... Um, 
Yeah, it, it it's it, it just chokes me up because I, I I think about that little kid and I think about 13 year old kids now that I mentor and I can't even believe that I was going down that road. Um, but ultimately, the homelessness lasted for four years. Um, we were in and out of the station wagon into motels. I can't I could go on and on about the different stories, but ultimately, um, being around drugs, prostitution, gangs, um, I started shoplifting so we could eat. But through that time, again, digging through dumpsters, collecting cans, I started getting odd jobs, started working at telemarketing places, uh, ultimately started working at Carl's Jr. without a work permit. So it was kind of funny because I looked older, so I was able to blend in with everybody and kind of just make it. And uh, meanwhile, my mom was still doing all these different things. She was being an informant to the police department while also running drugs with people. It was just, it was seriously fucked up. Uh, but again, I mean, tons of stories. It'll be in a book someday, but ultimately, uh, the day things really changed was when I came back from the liquor store and this guy walked up to me in the motel parking lot where we're staying. And he asked me if I wanted to buy a carton of cigs cigarettes. And I asked him what he had. And he said, Oh, I got a carton of Marlboro reds. Well, I didn't smoke Marlboro reds. I actually smoked menthols. I actually smoked cools. Well, um, not to offend anybody, but, uh, if you know, usually black people smoke menthols, cools, Newports, things of that nature. So he thought I was mocking him. And actually I pulled a pack of cigarettes out of my back pocket and I showed him I'm smoking cools. He still thought I was fucking with him. And he actually told me that he thought I wasn't buying the cigarettes from him because he was black. And I told him, I said, Hey, listen, I'm from Inglewood. I don't judge anybody by the color of their skin. I judge them by what's in their heart. I don't fucking care about your, your marble reds. If you had a carton of cools, I'd buy them off you for five bucks, but I don't want the marble reds. The guy didn't fucking believe me and put a gun to my temple and told me that he was going to blow my fucking brains out because I was a racist motherfucker. After all I'd been through in my life, my immediate response was to literally grab his hand and the gun and tell him to fucking do it. I said, if you got the fucking balls, do it, but I'm not a fucking racist and I'm not going to buy your cigarettes. So there. Fortunately, a friend of mine named Will, another black guy, came walking up and says, no, 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 don't fuck with him, don't fuck with him, him and his moms are cool, him and his moms are cool, blah, 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 kind of ironed it all out, and fortunately, I didn't die that night, but what it really did for me is it kind of opened my eyes to realize that I was at a point in my life where I had to make a choice, and the choice was this, either wind up dead or in jail or get the fuck out of there. So yeah, I just got to that crossroads and I thought, okay, I had other young friends that lived in that particular motel and I just saw the road they were going down. They were older than me and I didn't want to do that. And so, um, one of the things we were doing is me and my buddies were, uh, telemarketing out of this guy's apartment in Huntington beach, which sounds creepy, but it wasn't, we were actually setting roofing appointments. And lo and behold, we go to work one day and like, I didn't need any other bad news. Uh, my boss told me and my buddy who also lived in the motel, he says, Hey, I got good news and I got bad news. And we're like, fuck, okay. I've had enough bad news to last a lifetime. What is it? And he said, well, the bad news is I'm closing up shop and I'm moving to Texas. He goes, but the good news is I know you guys want to get out of that motel. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave you my apartment, uh, leave you the deposit and everything. So all you got to do is just come in sign the lease and take over. I've already talked to the front office and you guys could do it. The rent's 850 bucks a month. And, um, that's what it is. Me and my friend Robert, I remember we looked at each other like, fuck, we could do this. You know, we can get your brother, John, we can get, uh, um, we had two other guys, Rambo and some other guy, Carlos, Rambo and Carlos. And we're like, if we all pulled together, we could actually live here. And it was a two bedroom apartment. And I was like, holy shit, this is fucking cool. And Huntington beach, you know, it was pretty rad. And at that point I was about 17 years old. 
So I'd already gone through a bunch of shit, being homeless in and out of the car on the streets, you know, uh, not being in school, getting odd jobs and all this other shit, doing drugs, gangs, all that stuff. Like I said before, and I came to that crossroads after that guy put the gun to my head. And then all of a sudden this landed in my lap. It was like perfect. So I had to make one of the toughest decisions I ever had to make in my entire fucking life at that point was to abandon my mom and move on with my own life or stay there and potentially wind up dead or in jail. And so, um, I sat on the stairs that one night and I looked out and I saw, you know, the prostitution going on cops coming in and out of the place, you know, just all that shit. And I just realized I don't want to fucking die. I've already been through hell and back in the short time I'd been alive, only 17 years. So I just decided, I'm like, I'm going to do this. So thinking my mom would be excited for me, given the fact that we actually won the lottery while we were homeless, no shit. She won $5,000 off a scratcher ticket. And that could have been enough for a down payment on an apartment. Could have got me back into school. Got to got clothes. I mean, we could have restarted our life, but again, the cats and the dog, we were down to one dog and about probably 20 or 12 cats at that point in a motel room, by the way. Um, yeah, not positive. Uh, <laughs> so at any rate, I approached my mom and I told her I had this opportunity and I knew in my heart that I wasn't going to leave her there, like abandon her. I was going to just move and then still try to financially support her somehow because she didn't have a job. She was actually cleaning the grounds at the motel to get money off the rent. So I was kind of like the man of the family at 17 years old for my mom, which is gross and it's just weird and it's not right. It's not right at all. And so I told my mom, I said, listen, I'm not leaving you. I'm leaving the motel, but I'm still going to come back here every night and help you take care of the animals. And you're going to have to get a job and you're going to have to put your big girl britches on. You're going to have to fucking get back to work. Um, unfortunately, uh, and quite sadly, uh, I got called all sorts, all sorts of names. I got told I'm a selfish asshole. I got, I mean, I can't even remember all the superlatives that came out of her mouth at that point, but I just remember sitting there feeling like somebody had just jabbed my heart with a fucking huge skewer skewer and was just moving it around. You know, it was like, Oh, I'm such an asshole for all this stuff when I've been here for you and I've done all this stuff and I've already had all this mental and physical abuse and I'm literally ready to get fucking shot in the head over cigarettes. And yet you want me to be here for you. And I didn't know about codependency at that time, but the God's honest truth was like, okay, I got to get out of here. This is going to fucking kill me. So I wound up moving out, but every night she wound up getting a job and every night I went back there and I took care of the cats and I gave her money and I did that for a while. And at the same time I started uh, making new friends and I started getting a life, you know, it was pretty cool. So I was working two jobs. I was, you know, partying my ass off. It was the height of the eighties. So heavy metal was happening. My hair was long and I started dating girls and it was fucking cool. I mean, it was just like, wow, I was just like on the other side of things, but I was still doing drugs. Um, and I wasn't doing anything with my life. And then suddenly this guy came into my life. It was my girlfriend at the time. Her name was Tammy and, uh, her, her dad, um, upper middle-class family, you know, super nice, lived in Fountain Valley, California, uh, got around them. This guy was just amazing, just absolutely amazing. Uh, and he started asking me questions about my life and everything. And he didn't judge me by the way I looked. I mean, I had long hair, smoking cigarettes, rocker guy living in an apartment with four other guys. I mean, it was crazy. Here I am dating his beautiful daughter. And, uh, he was like, so, uh, you thought about going back to school? And at the time I was probably about 18 at that point. And I'm like, I, I can't go back to high school. I'm fucking too old for that shit. I didn't say it like that to him, but in my brain, I was like, what are you crazy old man? You know, I'm, I'm I, that boat just sailed. And then he told me about a GED. So I was like a GED, what the fuck is that? And he's like general education diploma. 
So of course I was dating his daughter and I still wanted to keep that happening because she loved me and she took care of me. And it was like the first time in my life I really had somebody who loved me and, and realizing their family loved me. And it was just awesome. It was like, I didn't want to destroy that. I didn't want to lose that for anything. So I was like, all right, cool. I'll go find out about this GED thing and it can't be that hard and I'll go do that and figured nothing would come about it. But the fact I could still date his daughter. So uh, checked into that, wound up, long story short, wound up going to continuation school for about six months, I think it was, and then uh, took the GED test and I passed. So I came back and I was like, look, I got my GED. Oddly enough, I told my mom about it. She could care fucking less. She was just wondering how much money I was going to be able to give her. And at that point, Bill said to me, okay, uh, good job, good job. Now, uh, what are you going to do about college? The God's honest truth, I never thought about college. I never thought I could go to college. I never thought I was smart enough to go to college. I just didn't think that was in my future. I figured I was going to be doing construction or telemarketing or some shit and just scraping through life. And I never really gave my future a thought because I never knew I was going to be here tomorrow, quite honestly. So uh, again, trying to impress the dad, keep the girlfriend, you know, all that stuff. I started, I went to Golden West Community College in Huntington Beach and I walked through the front door one day, not knowing what the hell to do or say or anything. I just took a chance. I believed in myself and I believed in what he was saying that I could achieve. And so I walked in the front admissions desk and I said, hi, I'd like to go to school here. I'm not sure what to do, but um, can you help me? And so they wound up helping me and getting me enrolled. And uh, my first class was actually, interestingly enough, an interpersonal communications class, which I loved. I didn't realize how much really went into the overall communication process between people. So it really opened my eyes to listening and paraphrasing and, and all this stuff. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that we don't communicate very well at all. And I realized this at the age of, I was probably maybe 19 at that 18 or 19, but at any rate, so I enroll in college. So I'm a college student, right? Go back to all my buddies, all my friends, all my homies, all that other shit. And I tell them, Hey, I'm going to school. And, um, again, much to my surprise, thinking that people would be happy for me that I'm actually getting my shit together. Got a lot of, Oh, that's stupid. What are you doing that for? That's lame. You know, you shouldn't do that. Blah, blah, blah. You're too old, whatever, you know, whatever bullshit, you know, cause people want to drag you down. And it was, again, I got to a point in that situation, that pressure, because I had these nice people who were successful and happy and had money giving me this great advice. But then I had my friends who I loved and I wanted to be around. I didn't want to lose their judgment because I'd never had that before. I never had that acceptance, that involvement, that inclusion, that fun. So I was really at a crossroads. Cause I was like, I don't want to abandon this, but I also don't want to, I want to keep going on the, the right road. That's going to get me to the life that I deserve and the life I want. So that ultimately I can make an impact. I knew once I got out of that motel that I wanted to do something to take my story, to make a difference in other people's lives. You know, I hope you guys have that whatever there's a little, little side tidbit, take whatever pain and shit you've been through in your life and give it a different meaning and go out there and make it better for the people who might be going through it right now. That's a little side tip. So at any rate, I got to a point, my girlfriend and I were doing really well and these guys were still partying and doing all sorts of shit long stories, all sorts of stories about that. I was doing drugs. I tried cocaine and was like, okay, I'm just doing the wrong fucking things here. So me and my girlfriend decided to move out and that just tore apart a lot of relationships, unfortunately, but I had to make, again, I had to make that decision for myself. I was at that crossroads. You guys have been at that crossroads. I had to decide what was better for me, not what was, what felt good in the moment, but what was going to get me where I needed to go long term. Now, I hope you understand that. So ultimately she and I got married. 
um, at 19 years old. We had a huge wedding at the Crystal Cathedral Arboretum in Garden Grove. If you know the Crystal Cathedral, um, we got married in the Arboretum right next to it. Had, I don't know, six or seven or eight bridesmaids and groomsmen. It was huge. It was a fucking huge. It was the best wedding I've ever been to. It was, it was a party, except for my current one. Of course, I have to make sure I say that. But it was at that time, it was huge. I mean, we had an open bar. It was a big, huge party. I mean, it was it was mayhem the night before the bachelor party. I mean, if you will, it was just crazy. It was good times. Got married and um, long story short, that didn't work out. We were married for about five years. Um, however, I can say to this day, we're still awesome friends. We're still family. She's a beautiful person. Uh, I'm so proud of her. I mean, she's done amazing things with her life. Interestingly enough, like I said in the last episode, I had a live radio show called the Kick-Ass Radio Show. And one of the best episodes I ever had was I had my ex-wife on the first half of the show, Tammy. And then I had I brought on my current wife, Barbara, and so I was sitting there talking and I talked about relationships and I talked about how we can get over the bullshit in our life and still be cool with people. Cause you don't, just because something bad happens or something ends, it doesn't mean you have to be a dick about it and be harboring all that resentment all your life. So actually that show is on uh, iTunes. So if you go to the kick-ass radio show on iTunes, you can actually find it. It's somewhere in there. Chris interviews his ex-wife and his current wife or something like that. But anyway, um, so I encourage you to check that out if you want, if you want to see something, hear something pretty cool and interesting. Um, so yeah, we ultimately got divorced and that was a, that was a pretty tough time in my life. I won't go into the reasons why just out of respect for the whole situation. But, um, so I had to rediscover myself at 23 years old on my own. So I didn't have my mom anymore. I mean, she was off doing her thing. Fortunately, she became stable for the most part. I was still helping her out a little bit. So going to school, got my, got a job and, uh, just kind of like trying to figure myself out in my twenties and just kind of realign with what it is I'm going to do. Sadly enough, um, Bill, her dad passed away. Um, it sucked. It was really bad because after we got divorced, we lost contact a little bit and that really hurt me because he was like the first real honest to God father figure in my life who was positive and loved me and cared about me and, and, you know, warts and all, you know, with the long hair and everything, he taught me to believe in people, not to look at what the package is, but he taught me to look what's inside of people. And I'll never forget that lesson, but I had the honor of holding his hand when he passed away. It was, um, his wife on one side of the bed and it was me on the other side of the bed. And I got to hold his hand while all of his kids and the family were in the room. And I just got to tell him, I got to whisper in his ear, Bill, it's okay. I've got this. I'll be here for the girls. I'll be here for the girls. Just go ahead and go. I've got this. I promise I will never not be in their life. I will always be there for them. And to this day, I've always been there for them. We're still family. I still love him to death, but unfortunately he passed away. So at any rate, I had to really learn a lesson about myself and dig deep when he passed away because I went to the beach and I was like, what's this fucking life for? You know, I've had all these trials and tribulations and, you know, and part of it just doesn't even feel like it's worth it because, you know, what's going to happen? We're going to die anyway. Right? So it was a pretty dark time for me. And I just hunkered down. I just started focusing on my job, focusing on my school, uh, wound up getting my bachelor's program. And then ultimately I'm very proud to say that, uh, the seventh grade dropout, the seventh grade homeless dropout, uh, ultimately earned his master's degree in, uh, when I turned 31. So I got my master's degree and at the same year I bought my first house. So I really just, I dedicated myself. I just was like, okay, let me just take the, the spirit and the wisdom that Bill taught me and not give up and just be tenacious and not worry about all the partying and all that stuff. So for those four years, actually six years while I did my undergrad and I did my master's degree, my life consisted of work, school, and the gym. And then one night a week I went out, whether if I had a girlfriend or if I just went out partying. So that was my life for a long period of time. 
and dedicating myself to my job. I was working major overtime hours trying to get raises and promotions, and I wound up getting like six or seven promotions over the course of my time there. I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still there. I've been there for 26 years. Now I'm the director of operations. So I'm kind of jumping ahead and jumping back, but I just want to give you guys a little bit of, of feedback on where I go in this journey and some of the positives that really happen for it because everything happens for a reason. And had I not been tenacious and dedicated and committed and got myself around the right people, like I said, I'd probably be dead or in jail. And that's definitely not what we wanted. So just really, again, think about what you're here for and think about what your life is supposed to be and go out there and live it every fucking day and don't give up. And I'm here to help you. So reach out to me. I want to help you guys. Speaking to my family, I'm going to go down and spend some time with them. I love them dearly. I love you guys. You're never alone. I'm always with you. And I really hope you truly understand that. And I hope you find value out of this and me sharing my story. I just really encourage you to not settle for less than you deserve because then you're going to less than you settle for. All right. So peace out. Take care. We'll talk to you. We'll see you next time.